So the main question I'm asking myself at the moment is the nature of the animal mind um, related to that how minds evolved um, and how conscious minds evolved. And the perspective I'm taking on that is to try to examine minds, mechanisms of behavior in organisms that are far, far simpler than ourselves. So I've got a particular focus on insects, and for me particularly the honeybee. And for me it's a very live question, and remains a live question, as to whether we can think of the honeybee as having any kind of mind, or is it more appropriate to think of the honeybee as something more mechanistic, something more robotic. I tend to lean towards thinking of the honeybee as being a conscious agent, certainly a cognitively effective agent, and that's the biggest question I'm exploring for myself at the moment. There's always been an interest in animals, natural history, animal behavior. Insects have always had this particular point of tension because they are unusually inaccessible compared to so many other animals. But when we look at things like mammals and dogs, <clears throat> we are so drawn to empathize with them that that tends to mask so much. When we're looking at something like an insect, they're doing so much, but their faces are completely expressionless, their bodies are completely alien to ours, they operate on a completely different scale. And you cannot empathize, you cannot emote, and it's not immediately clear what they are, whether they're an entity or whether they're a mechanism. That interest was always there. So that's what led to my PhD, which was looking at mechanisms of learning and memory in fruit flies. And I realized in that PhD that that was a fascinating question, but there were limits to fruit fly behavior. But then there was this other insect, the honeybee. And as I was working on fruit flies, this army of papers were coming out, making these astonishing claims about what bees were capable of. So bees were not just doing simple learning, they were doing concept learning, they had social behavior. They, and one thing after another came out, they even had a concept of number that were coming out, there's an insect that can learn abstract concepts and has a concept of number. And that completely amazed me. So we have the same tiny insect with a brain on a scale that is comprehensible and accessible. And it was also clear at this point that there would soon be a genome for this organism. And I thought, okay, if we want to ask fundamental questions of the mechanisms of behavior, we have got to work with something like a honeybee because we've got this complexity of behavior. We've got a brain that's simple enough that we should be able to get at mechanism and we will be able to pull genomic resources. And that's why 18 years ago, I started working with honeybees. The, the big overarching theme of what I'm trying to do at the moment is I'm trying to get a holistic systems level understanding of how the insect brain works. And that will involve engaging with the question of can we think about that system as being conscious in any way? So I've been working, I'm working towards this. It's a huge, huge question. It's an enormously collaborative project. We're taking it apart in the ways that we can sensibly also deconstruct the insect brain. So the insect brain has this beautiful modularity, which means that we can focus on either certain questions or certain regions and try to understand those. 
but we can still keep an eye on how the whole system works. So the, the collaborative team that I'm working with involves um, a major group in the UK at Sheffield University. Um, I've also got colleagues still in Illinois and at Queen Mary in London who I'm working with on this project. We span, as the disciplines involved, we span across genomics, computational modeling, mathematical modeling, biorobotic modeling, behavior, neurochemistry, neurogenomics. We, we've got to really bring every tool that we have into this problem. And the modeling is, is a really core component of what we're doing. We're, we're dealing with a complex system and highly complex questions, which means compared to the way I used to do experiments where you would frame quite a simple falsifiable hypothesis, you would prove or disprove it and you would move on. It's hard to deconstruct a question like how a nervous system, how a neural system works, to deconstruct that down into simple, purely falsifiable hypotheses. Another way to approach it is to try to imagine how the system could work, then to use modeling, whether it's biorobotic or computational, as tools to explore whether your imagined system actually could function and then to use also that model to help frame a question that you can ask of the real system. And that becomes an indirect test of whether your assumptions are right. But if you keep iterating that process, and if you keep the communication open, and if you don't become over-attached to your model, you can still make progress towards how the real system works. And I found that very, very constructive and informative for asking these questions about how so-called higher-order cognitive systems could be operating in something like a bee brain. So I, I describe myself as a comparative neuroscientist, and this discipline of comparative neuroscience is itself quite young, but even within my career has transformed completely beyond recognition because of developments that are happening in all surrounding disciplines. So across my career, we've seen the advent of genomics, the advent of proteomics, and these evolved from being exclusive tools that would have taken years to develop to being, to enabling you to ask informatic questions and get answers in the time scale of months at the kind of affordable cost that any lab can afford. That's completely changed our perspective on the relationship between genes and behavior. And then an even more recent revolution, which is happening now, which is, I think, for me, even more exciting, is this connectomic revolution, where we're now able, and it's feasible, to map in exquisite detail the connections of a part of the brain and soon even an entire insect brain. And that's making feasible it's giving us absolute answers to questions that we would have debated even just a few years ago. Questions like, does the insect brain work as an integrated system? And now, because we have a draft of a connectome for a full insect brain, we can absolutely answer that question. And that completely changes again, not just the questions that we're asking, but our capacity to answer questions. And then there's a whole new generation of questions that become accessible. So when I say a connectome, what I mean is 
it is a, an absolute map of the neural connections in a brain. And that's not a trivial problem because it's okay at one level to, for example, with a light microscope, to get a sense of the structure of neurons, to reconstruct some neurons and see where they go. But actually knowing which neurons connect with other neurons, to do that, you've got to go to another level of detail. You've got to go to electron microscopy and actually look at the synapses. What we have now, thanks to advances in microscopy, advances in image processing, and advances in AI, is we can, first of all, generate the stack of electron micrograph sections for an entire brain or brain region. And with better image processing, better AI, we can work through that stack, reconstruct the neurons, spot the synapses, and actually make a statement about, yep, these two neurons have functional connection. We don't quite know the strength, or we may not know whether excitatory or inhibitory. Sometimes we can make a guess. But even with that connection information, we can therefore say, okay, we now categorically know the flow, what, at least what flow of information is capable through this brain, even if we would need further study to know what flow of information is happening through the brain. But that connectome means we now have the detail of the map. With the detail of the map, we can work back to asking, okay, what is the essence of the map? What's important in this map for how the system functions? So in terms of if I'll in terms of what the goal is, if I'll address that first of all in thinking about the contribution that a connectome can make. So I talked a little bit a little while ago, a little earlier, about how modeling is now such an important perspective to advance the understanding of neuroscience when you're looking at a systems level. The problem with a model is making sure that you're modeling a brain and you're not just modeling your concept of a brain. The problem with a model is making sure that you can relate it to the reality of the system. The benefit of a connectome is it really helps you ground into the reality of the system that you're trying to model. If you know that connections don't exist between a region, they can't be in your model at all. So this is a huge benefit of, connect, of connectomics. It really helps you ground your modeling into the biology of the system that you're trying to understand. In terms of the bigger picture, in terms of where I'm trying to go with all of this, I would like to ultimately have a sense of, this is going to sound really pretentious, but ultimately have a sense of how minds work and given that I do see myself as an evolutionary biologist, how minds have evolved. Um, I don't believe that we could really answer either of those questions by looking at the human mind alone, in isolation. Particularly for the evolutionary dimension, I think we need to be looking at a range of minds. Um, and I think that that might help us understand the progression of how a mind could have evolved from something very, very simple to something of phenomenal complexity like our own. Um, I do believe there will be a gradualism there. And I think looking at the minds of the far simpler minds, not simple, but simpler minds of smaller and simpler organisms like an insect could give us a perspective and a contribution in understanding our own minds.
we experience ourselves as conscious entities, we wouldn't describe ourselves as being a neural mechanism. So certainly our perception of ourselves involves something greater than the neural mechanism. It involves a mind. I'm not a dualist, so I see that mind as being a product of the neural mechanisms. I see the neural mechanisms as being a system that has evolved. And if I accept that the mind is a product of the neural mechanisms, then the mind itself evolved. It's a question I don't, well, I certainly don't think that we're the only mindful entity on this planet. It's a live question as to what other organisms are also, also possess a mind, as well as possessing neural mechanisms. But that, the liveness of that question, the tension in that question is why I'm studying something like a honeybee. It's not because I'm wedded to believe that the honeybee is mindful. It's because I think the honeybee could actually go either way. Is it more appropriate to describe that as a neural mechanism? Or is there, in fact, a level at which we could attribute something like a mind to something like a honeybee? When I say a neural mechanism, I mean a neural system, an, inter an integrated neural system, a nervous system. So I've spoken so far about my work on comparative neuroscience and my work on the bee as for, for the pure fascination of studying bee behavior. But there's actually two streams to research in my lab. So half of my lab, actually physically more than half of my lab, is also studying what we call bee health and welfare. So since 2007, there's been enormous concern about the global populations of bees, the global populations of the global of pollinators in general, of insects in general. Um, there's been an enormous response from anybody who works on bees and pollinators to react to that challenge, and I've been part of that. So half of my lab is also invested in investigating bee health, how we can better understand the health of bees and their colonies, and how we can make more informed interventions to support that. In terms of what half is easier to fund, it's easier to fund the more applied research. I think that's obvious. And there is an immediate imperative there. Um, and I absolutely endorse that. Um, it's not as easy to fund the comparative neuroscience. But that's inevitable. These are, these are questions that we should be working harder to fund. If we really think we have something to say here, we need to make our arguments very clearly and fight for the funding for it. In terms of the, in terms of the comparative neuroscience side of my work, what I'm working towards is to comprehend how the honeybee is able to so effectively and autonomously organize all of its behavior, demonstrate such a high level and startling range of cognitive capacities that genuinely do rival those of mammals. They're central place foragers, they do all of these things. So in terms of things, it's shown that bees can do. Um, they can solve tasks of metacognition. So, for example, we can set the bee a challenge where we provide the bee with sometimes information, a task that is easy to solve, sometimes information where the that's information that's ambiguous. And when the information is ambiguous, if the bee is punished for getting it wrong, 
Um, if you give it the, cho the choice to opt out of the task, it is more likely to opt out when the information is of low quality or unavailable. And that's been interpreted as metacognition. It's an awareness of how much you know and adjusting your behavior adaptively because of that. I think we can still explain that capacity in terms of the nervous structures of the bee, but this is the kind of behavior that they manifest. Um, they manifest abstract concept learning. They can learn features that are not bound to a stimulus, things like bigger than, smaller than, above, below. They can seem to have a basic concept of numerosity, certainly quantities of more than, less than. It's been recently claimed they have a concept of zero even as part of that. These are all this family of traits that at one time were considered to be pure, the thing that separated humans from all other animals and then were slowly recognized to appear in primates and then large brain mammals and then suddenly we're recognizing that something like a honeybee with less than a million neurons is able of doing all of these things. Designing an experiment a bee can opt out of is actually remarkably easy because there's a very, very robust part of bee behavior. What bees do is they like to collect nectar and take it home. So you can train them in that way to collect a small amount of sugar reward. And you can train them into various sorts of apparatus and they will very readily associatively learn a whole range of features where they can collect, they will be associated with a sugar reward. And they learn that with incredible speed and the memories are lifelong. So an experiment, for example, can be a simple chamber that you train a bee to fly into. There can be two stimuli, one of which offers a small volume of sugar, sugar solution, one of which offers a small volume of a quinine solution, which tastes bitter to a bee. And the bee will fly in und under its own volition once it's learned to enter the chamber. If you can distinguish the two stimuli, they could be colors, they could be odors, they could be quite abstract symbols. It will learn quickly to, once it's sampled the sugar with one stimulus, it will learn which stimulus indicates the sugar. And then once it's sampled, you can release it. It will take the sugar back to the hive, then it will come back. So we know it's the same bee because we, we paint mark them or we stick number tags on them. These days we might attach a radio frequency tag to them. Um, so it's very easy for us to tell the bees apart. So and the nice thing about bees, when they're feeding at sugar, they're very calm. You can easily just come up behind them and put a dot of paint on their back. So do I ever form attachments to a bee? So the scientist in me is obviously going to say, no, of course not. And the, re the experimental realist is that, yes, of course I do. So in the course of the metacognition experiments, we would work with the same individual over hundreds of trials. And what you learn in that process is that there is enormous variability between these now individually identifiable bees and how they approach the task that you're giving them, and you end up really rooting for them. When you work as closely with bees as I do, and this is a large part of the reason why I've been putting this, this conversation forward, like can we talk about the bee as in any way experiential, because when you work as closely with bees as I've done for years, you and when you have them individually marked, and when you're tracking them over the course of days or sometimes a week, they don't live very long, but sometimes a whole week you can follow them. Mm -hmm. 
you you then you see you start to see beyond their hard exoskeleton and you start to see beyond their expressionless face and their incredibly alien appearance and you start to recognize just how much individualistic behavioral variation there is within this organism and you start to recognize the sophistication of the behavioral decisions that they are making moment by moment when they're assessing not just the tasks that I set them, but in some ways it's even more apparent when you look at them doing what evolution designed them to do, which is to gather nectar and pollen from flowers. Now, when you think about that, that is a phenomenally challenging task. And it's not just challenging cognitively and spatially, it's challenging energetically. So we have minute flowers scattered all across the environment, of which only a minute proportion will contain any food at all at a given point in time. You've got to find them. You've got to identify which are the ones that are going to give you a reward. And you have got to make a profit and take it home. Because if you don't, your colony will die. So in terms of working with bees, getting into the hive. For the honeybee, it's a lot of the reasons why they're such an extraordinary animal to work with. Because, I mean, as humans, we've had an association with the bee for at least 7,000 years. Um, it's an open question as to whether the bee's been domesticated, because up until very recently, that the bees always had complete contact with the wild population. It's, it's a wild organism. We've just got good at giving it what it needs in terms of what the hive structure is perfect for it so that we can take off a surplus of honey. But because we've got this huge, huge, huge long association of working with bees, it's really easy to actually open up a hive, take out a frame of bees. You can take out a frame of bees just before they're about to emerge as adults. So one thing that we often do is we pull a frame at that point and then we can emerge them overnight in an incubator. And then we get these beautiful, beautiful, fluffy little day-old bees the next morning. Their cuticle is too soft to sting, it's too soft to fly. So you've got a few hours where you can pick them up and you can put a paint mark on them or a number tag on them and then put them back in their hive. And they will be accepted into their hive totally naturally. They will then go about their entire life in the hive. But we know who they are. We know how old they are. We can follow them. So we can study them in their natural environment as well as having them participate in whatever various cognitive tasks we want to challenge them with. So typically, for me, an experiment I would set up was I would have an observation hive. So I take, I set it up under glass, two or three or four frames of honeycomb covered in bees with a queen. That's big enough to be a completely functioning hive, but it's under glass, I keep it in a warm room, and that allows me to study exactly what's going on and who's who. Um, the bees aren't disturbed by that. As long as I keep the light level in the room low, they're under glass, but they're fine. That doesn't worry them. There's a tube through the wall of the room that allows them to freely come and go. And that's, to, the, to a bee, that's like having a, a hive in a tree hollow. It's perfect for them. And so they're flying in and out of their wild environment. And then outside, I might put a sugar water feeder. And 
Bees are really good at finding things that give sugar, so they will find that themselves and they'll land. And then when a bee from my hive has landed, then as she's feeding, I might pick her up really gently and put a little mark on her back and put her back on the feeder and she'll be okay with that. And then I know who's who. And then once she's marked to that feeder, I can train her with little drops of sugar or by moving the feeder either somewhere else or into a specific testing chamber. And then I've got a known bee. I know where she came from. I know how old she is. And she can then participate in whatever task, whatever learning task we're setting up. A lot of, I think because we use the word queen or the Egyptians use the word king, we have a misconception of the, of the role of the queen in the society. Um, the queen is usually the only reproductive in a honeybee colony, but she is spe she's specialized entirely to that reproductive role. It's not that she is any way directing the society. It's actually, I think, more accurate to say that the behavior and activity of the queen is directed by the workers. The queen is essentially an egg-laying machine. She is fed unlimited, high-protein, high-carbohydrate food by the nurse bees that tend her. She is provided with an array of perfectly prepared cells to lay eggs in, and she will lay as many eggs as she can, and the colony will raise as many of those eggs as they can in the course of the day. But the queen is not ruling the show, and the queen only flies once in her life. She will leave the hive on a mating flight. She'll be mated by up to 20 male bees, in the case of a honeybee. And then she stores that semen for the rest of her life. And so that's, that is the role of the queen. She is the reproductive, but she's not the ruler of the colony. Many societies have attached this sense of royalty. And I think that as much reflects that we see the society and we see the order inside a honeybee society. And therefore we assume that there must be some sort of structure that maintains that order. And we see this one individual who's bigger and we anthropomorphize that that somehow must be the leader. But no, 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 it is, there is no way that I think it's appropriate to say that the queen has any leadership role in a honeybee society. A honeybee queen would live these days two to three years it's actually getting shorter. Um, it's not that long ago that if you read the older books, then they would report that queens would live up to seven years. Um, we're not really seeing queens last that long now. Um, it's more common for queens to be replaced every two to three years. A regular worker honeybee, so all the worker honeybees are female, the queen is female, it's a matriarchal society. A worker honeybee in summer will live a total of nine weeks if you're lucky. And the typical way we just, well, there is three weeks of development from an egg to an adult. Typically two to three weeks inside the hive, and the hive is a very protected environment. And in the hive, they're rearing the next generation of workers to come through. And then they start to forage. And again, we would have said not that long ago that a forager could live two to three weeks of foraging before they wear themselves out. We're increasingly finding now that the life of a forager is probably seven to 10 days. It's much shorter than that. Um, foraging for a bee is always very challenging, energetically and cognitively. Um, and we're making it harder for bees at the moment. There's a lot of reasons why 
it's a harder life to be a forager bee in in a in most current environments. Um, most current environments are enormously disturbed to what a honeybee would be used to foraging in. Often they're agricultural or semi-agricultural. The distribution of wildflowers, if there are any, is enormously reduced. Um, that means the availability of food and the diversity of food is way down compared to what bees would be used to. They're having to fly further for less, fewer resources, um, higher risk of them actually running out of power before they've even found enough fuel to fuel themselves, let alone get back home. Um, as well as that, many of our environments are contaminated with pesticide. And a wake-up call has been the realization of the very, very low levels of pesticide that can be damaging to a forager honeybee. We used to think that if the pesticide didn't kill the bee, that, that would be okay. And I think what we're realizing now, and it really isn't that surprising, is that a bee doesn't need to be killed. All it needs is to be damaged. Either its immune system damaged or its brain damaged. If it's damaged sufficiently poorly that it cannot make it back home, that bee is as good as dead. From the perspective of the colony, it is dead. From the perspective of the bee, it will be lucky to last a night if it can't make it back home. So it's these sublethal effects of either diseases or of pesticides that are really impacting on bees' longevity in the environment and on the amount they can contribute back to their colony. In terms of what could be done, a shift to organic farming methods would eliminate pesticide use. Um, that could only possibly be of enormous benefit to bees. It's an open question whether we could ever transition to an entirely organic method of food production given the weight of human populations that depend on agriculture. Even if we couldn't, if we could transition to an agricultural method that is less dependent on pesticides. So that would involve what we would call integrated pest management strategies, things that encourage the use of natural enemies of crop pests rather than purely using pesticides, things that replaced field boundaries and margins of fields that encouraged natural enemies and that broke up the crop monocultures and thereby reduced the likelihood of a pest outbreak. These kind of strategies we've known for 20, 30 years reduce dependency on pesticide. If we can start to shift our agricultural model to roll those kind of strategies out, clearly we're going to have a better performing pollinator population, which will improve crop yields. And I think that we can have alternative agricultural models that are far more friendly to our bees and the pollinators that we ultimately rely on as part of the ecosystem that is generating our food crops. The two things that are really standing in the way of this kind of progress are inertia and current financial models. We've become very good at mass producing food in large volumes cheaply, but there is an environmental cost to that. 
and we've been willing to pay that environmental cost so far. I think we're reaching the point where the environmental cost is about to bite us really badly in the ass. Um, I would hope that we could transition to alternative models that I believe are viable before it really bites us. But the cost will be, we will be need to be willing to pay more for our food. And we will need to be smarter in how we're using food and tolerate less food waste. If we do that, I think we could transition. I hope, I tend to be an optimist. I hope we could transition to a more viable, sustainable model without a revolution. I don't think we need brand new technologies or to throw out models. We've got a lot of things we could do. The concern about pollinator populations, insect populations, and bee populations specifically is a global concern. The way in which regions have adapted is very variable. Um, there is an enormous concern about pesticides and the, the new neonicotinoid pesticides in Europe to the extent that Europe has banned the use of some neonicotinoids because of their concern about declining bee populations. Um, I think that's a constructive move, to be honest. It's also fair to say that not all parts of the world are hit equally by this problem. Um, it's definitely the most intensively agricultural, the most intensively industrialized parts of the world that are suffering most. And I think that that's very telling. I think that that's almost proves a natural experiment, if you would like. My home country of Australia so far has done very well in terms of our bee populations. Our bees are, fa are faring far better than most parts of the world. We're not without problems, but our bees are faring far better. I think there's two major reasons for that. Um, one is that Australia is the only country in the world that doesn't have the honeybee pest Varroa destructor. This is a parasitic mite which actually jumped species onto the European honeybee from its sister species 100 years ago. That was thanks to human movement of bee populations. And then thanks to human movement of bee populations, we've spread this emergent pest across the entire world, apart from Australia. Australia as an island continent, remarkably, hasn't got it yet. But we're all terrified we'll get it. The other reason Australia is faring better than most of the parts of the world, we have these beautiful tracts of unspoilt native bushland across huge parts of the country and that surround our agricultural areas in a, in a very, very meaningful and significant way. These are areas of the world that have never been cleared. They have never been sprayed with pesticide. They tend to be dominated by eucalypt trees, and eucalypt trees are a flowering tree. So in Australia, our bees have what bees would ideally want. They have natural, diverse wildflowers on which they can forage. And Australian beekeepers, whenever possible, put their bees close to bushland which is why we get some of the best honeys in the world. There's actually much of a tension between the different dimensions of my work, the dimensions that study the bee as a model for comparative neuroscience, and the dimensions that study honeybee health and welfare and its operation in a pollination system. Um, I think there's two reasons why I don't feel a tension. First of all, I think 
there's really interesting points at which the questions I look at intersect. Um, effective pollination, effective foraging is itself a cognitive task that the bee has evolved to solve phenomenally well. From that perspective, the neural mechanisms I like to study keep coming into play in terms of understanding what's needed to forage well and what can go wrong in the bee brain that can cause it to forage poorly. And that intersection is very, very rich. Another point where there could be tension is, you know, I'm a, I'm a beekeeper and here I am talking about whether bees are mindful and is it right that I'm a beekeeper? But beekeeping, unlike many forms of management of organisms for food production. Beekeepers, beekeeping is, I think, the ultimate humanist activity. It's, you can rear bees for honey production in a way that no bee is harmed in the production of the honey. You can organize the colonies so that they will naturally accumulate a very significant surplus that you can remove without harming the bees. In that process, you're giving the bees the perfect nest box, the disease-free environment, the completely open, natural foraging situation that they would need for to carry out the lifestyle they have evolved to carry out. Um, you're not harming them by harvesting the honey. So I'd really, I see this wonderful synergy rather than a point of tension between the different sides of my work.